0: there's a story in the Bible in the Old Testament about a man riding on his trusted donkey but he's traveling down a dangerous path it's an ironic story because the donkey is the one who perceives the danger and the man is oblivious and not only is he oblivious he gets really angry with the donkey for trying to save his life they're riding down the road and the donkey swerves off the road into the field The man beats the donkey back on the road. A little bit later, the road narrows. There's two walls, and the donkey leans into one wall and starts crushing the man's foot, and he beats the donkey back onto the path. Finally, the road narrows so much that there's no place to turn, and the donkey, the the man sees nothing, but the donkey sees the same thing he's seen the past two times. An angel standing in the middle of the path with a sword drawn. Scary sight. So the donkey lays down in the middle of the road. and He saves the man from certain death. As the donkey lays there being beaten by the man to get back up, the donkey starts talking to the man. Why are you beating me? It's a humorous story because the man doesn't even, he's not even startled by the donkey talking. It's like he's used to a donkey talking. Because he just answers the donkey. And they have this little conversation until God finally opens the man's eyes to see what the donkey has seen all along. This angel standing there ready to cut his head off if he keeps going. The donkey is saving this man's life. You can read about this story in the Old Testament in Numbers 22. Well, in the passage we're looking at this morning from the New Testament in the book of Mark, there's another animal. And it adds a little irony into a story that's full of irony and contrast. We're looking at Mark 14, verses 53 through 72, where Jesus is standing on trial for his very life. And while he's calm and bold before his accusers, the religious leaders, his number one follower, Peter, denies Jesus before a servant girl. Peter the one who claimed that he would never disown Jesus, that he would follow Jesus to his death, the the one that didn't stay awake and pray when Jesus said, watch and pray. He didn't stay with Jesus while he was taken, and he ends up denying Jesus before a servant girl. It's a rooster, an animal known for its foolish arrogance, who struts around as king of the roost, it's the rooster's cock-a-doodle-doo that ironically reminds Peter of his foolish arrogance when he proclaimed before Jesus that I will never disown you, yet he finds himself disowning Jesus three times. Mark uses a lot of irony in this passage as he contrasts the faithfulness of Jesus with the unfaithfulness of Peter. Peter. Well, before we read the passage, a quick review. It was the chief priests and the religious leaders, elders and teachers of the law, who sent Judas with a crowd of people armed with swords and clubs to arrest him. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and his armed accomplices seize Jesus and arrest him, and all the disciples flee and leave Jesus alone. That's where we pick up the story in verse 53 of Mark 14 to see what happens next. So if you open your Bible to Mark 14, verses 53 through 72, that's what we'll read. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the chief priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know know or understand what you're talking about he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, "'This fellow is one of them.' Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, "'Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean.' He began to call down curses and swore to them, "'I don't know this man you're talking about.' Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. If you've ever watched a sporting event where the referees are supposed to be unbiased, yet they penalize one team and then moments later the other team does the same thing but they get away with it, you either are somewhat uh, wrongly excited as your team benefits from this, or you're immediately angered as your team has a disadvantage. Well, as followers of Jesus, we look at this trial and we feel anger because in this trial, it's not unbiased. Jesus is presumed guilty. It's not a fair trial. All the players are united against him. He's assumed guilty and this trial is just trying to drum up evidence so that they have a reason to crucify Jesus that they can agree on. Before getting into more details, we, we zoom out and look at the whole passage. We can see that Mark uses a sandwich technique. We've talked about this through our study of Mark, uh, that he uses this a lot, and it's a style of writing where Mark begins one story, and then he interrupts that to tell another story, and then he finishes that story kind of like a sandwich with two pieces of bread and something in the middle. And these two stories work together to interpret each other and make a point. In verse 54, Mark recognizes or focuses in on Peter and notes that Peter follows from a distance. Peter has already fled when Jesus was seized and arrested, but he hasn't given up on Jesus yet. He's still interested. He's still invested. And we really don't know what he's thinking, but we know that he's still in the picture and he's following Jesus at a distance. He follows all the way into the courtyard of the high priest. Mark doesn't tell us how he gets in there. You can read about that in John 18, but he sits outside in the courtyard, warming himself around the fire while Jesus is inside on trial. Verse 55 switches to the trial of Jesus. And, and then verse 50, or 66 brings us back to what's happening with Peter. So Mark is intentionally contrasting what's happening with Jesus with what's happening with Peter. He's contrasting the truthfulness and faithfulness of Jesus with the denial and unfaithfulness of Peter. These stories are taking place simultaneously. Jesus is inside while Peter is outside. Jesus is questioned by the high priest while Jesus is questioned by a servant girl. Jesus is bold and honest while Jesus or Jesus is bold and honest while Peter is fearful and he lies. So now let's zoom in on the trial of Jesus. We already noticed he was presumed guilty. He's a threat to the religious leaders and the religious leaders want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. But as they look for evidence, they, they have no lack of, of witnesses. And given that Judas is, is, has been paid to betray Jesus, you, you kind of wonder how many of these witnesses might have been paid to bring a testimony against Jesus. And yet, they're, they're testifying falsely and their, their testimonies are not agreeing. Finally, in verse 57 Mark focuses in on one thing that, that, that they bring up. Someone comes in and they say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days, we'll build another not made with hands. And if you've read the, the book of Mark, uh, especially chapter 13, maybe chapter 11, you might think, that sounds familiar. Jesus did say something like that. Yet Mark says that this was a false testimony and that their testimony didn't agree. So if you go back and read in Mark 13 what he did say, or where he judged the temple in Mark 11, you'll see that he never said he would destroy the temple. He pronounced judgment on the temple, he proclaimed that it would be destroyed, but the witnesses were falsely accusing him of saying he would destroy it. And they couldn't even make their statements agree about what they said about that statement that Jesus had made. And the reason this testimony, the reason Mark focuses in on this testimony and why it's so important to them is because the temple is the center of worship and life for the Israelite people. And for the religious leaders, the temple was the seat of their power and their authority. And Jesus had pronounced judgment. And what he said in Mark eleven seventeen was that they had made the temple into something it wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be the meeting place between god and people a place where people were formed and where they were changed and and then they go out with a life change to serve god and and recognize him in all of life and jesus said they've made it into a den of robbers it's kind of ironic how they're the ones acting like robbers here slinking around at night giving false testimony while jesus is innocently innocent and standing on trial before them. It's an ironic also how close to the truth they are that Jesus is building a new temple and that he now is the meeting place between God and people and not made by human hands. Well, through all of this, Jesus remains silent, which is another fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53:7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. So they're hearing all these false testimonies. The testimonies aren't agreeing. They center in on what Jesus said about the temple, yet even what they they bring there is not agreeing, it's false. Finally, the high priest stands up, he takes charge, he's seeing that this isn't going anywhere, and he, he looks directly at Jesus and he says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And it's so ironic because up to this point in the story, no human has given Jesus the title son of God. And and he doesn't use the words son of God here, but it's the same idea, son of the blessed one. It means son of God. The Jewish people were very careful not to use the name of God. So so this is another way of saying son of God. And it's ironic because um, no human has used this title for Jesus yet. It's the high priest who's trying to condemn Jesus who uses his true title. And he's trying to accuse Jesus of blasphemy and he's given Jesus the fullest title so far given by a human. Demons have proclaimed that Jesus is uh, the Son of God and, and Jesus has told them to be quiet. Mark's introduction at the beginning of the book proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. God the Father has proclaimed Jesus to be the Son of God, both in his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, but this is the first human to give such a full description. And for the first time in the trial, Jesus speaks. In answer to the high priest's proclamation of who he is, Jesus says, I am. In Exodus, Moses asks God, who should I say is sending me when God has asked him to go to Pharaoh and, and bring the people out of slavery? He says, who, who are you? What's your name? And Jesus, and what does God say? I am. Jesus says, I am. And then he goes on to say, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself, and it's a title given from the book of Daniel. In chapter seven, Jesus is using this uh, because in the the book of Daniel, it's it's affirming of the humanity and divinity and, and a mission equal with God of this person, the Son of Man. So Jesus has taken this title. And so far, he's been quiet about his full identity. He's told people not to say anything. He's told the demons to be quiet. Because he knew that up to this point, people would misunderstand what he came to do. When he proclaimed that he was Messiah, people would take that up and think, oh, he's coming to uh, exert power and his authority through force and get rid of the, the, the Romans and kick them out. But Jesus was the true Messiah who came to reveal the kingdom of God through suffering. And now is the time when he can Give that full description because he's on that road. Ironically, the high priest claims that Jesus is the one committing blasphemy. The high priest thinks that Jesus is just a man. He doesn't accept the divinity of Jesus. And if Jesus was just a man, what he says would be blasphemy because blasphemy is misusing or slandering the name or character of God. And if Jesus was claiming to be God and he wasn't God, then he would be blaspheming. The name and character of God but if he is God then he's not and so he's accused of blasphemy by the high priest and once he's done that everyone agreed that they had the evidence they needed they condemned Jesus to death I told you there's a lot of irony in this passage and we've already seen a bunch of the irony another irony is what that while the people have blindfolded Jesus and are spitting at him They're telling him to prophesy. The ironic thing that is uh, they don't even realize how many prophecies that he's made are coming true in this moment. In chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, Jesus said, I will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That prophecy has just happened. They will con- would condemn him to death. That has just happened. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. This will happen in the passage for next week. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Jesus also prophesied that his, that his disciples would desert him, and they have. And he also said that Peter would deny him three times, and this is exactly what's happening outside while Jesus is being tried and condemned inside. Verse 66 brings us back to Peter as he's sitting in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. As Jesus is being tried by the religious leaders, Peter is approached by a servant girl and he's put on his own mini trial. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, or she says to Peter. But unlike Jesus who was silent until he only spoke the truth, Peter responds in fear and with a lie. And he uses two words for knowing. Uh, he said, it's, the English says, I don't know or understand. In Greek, the first is more of a theoretical understanding or perceiving, while the second is more of a practical knowledge. And the point is that Peter was thoroughly denying that he even knew had anything to do with Jesus. Jesus. And so he distances himself from Jesus with his words, and then it says physically he moves into the entryway. So he's verbally and physically distancing himself further from Jesus. Well, the servant girl's not finished with him yet. She sees him again, and this time she doesn't speak to Peter, but she speaks to the people nearby. And he says, this fellow is one of them. Now, this is the second chance for Peter to do right by Jesus. Jesus. But the pattern he's begun, this started way back in the garden when he didn't watch and pray, but fell asleep when Jesus told him to watch and pray. And then when he ran away from the guards, and then when he denied Jesus to the servant girl, he continues this pattern and he denies Jesus again. But instead of convincing the people of his innocence, the people standing around, they they begin to wonder, and they notice he's a Galilean, Galilee was a little to the north, they were in Judea now, and so they might have had a different accent, might have dressed differently, but it was obvious that he was from Galilee, and they say, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And this time, Peter full out curses and swears against knowing Jesus. And immediately, the rooster crows the second time. And Peter remembers that he was so adamant and proud that he would stand with Jesus and never deny him. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows a second time, you're gonna deny me three times, and finally he realizes his miserable failure, and he weeps. There's a challenge, a comfort, and an invitation for all of us in this passage this morning. The challenge is to consider how we are living as a witness to Jesus. A witness is someone who tells the truth about what they have seen and what they have experienced. As witnesses of Jesus, we act and speak truthfully about who we know him to be. And we walk, we we try to align our lives with who he was or who he is and what he's about as the Holy Spirit empowers us to be able to do that. Peter, the most prominent of Jesus' disciples, was not a faithful witness here. He thoroughly, completely, and repeatedly denied that he even knew Jesus. But it began way earlier, three times in the garden when Jesus told him to stay awake and perceive and pray. Three times he didn't perceive the, amount, the, the, the importance of this moment and obey Jesus and pray. How are we being... Prepared to be faithful witness to Jesus? How are we preparing ourselves? What What are the things that you're susceptible to? If you're tempted to lie when you're put on the spot, how are you praying for strength now to tell the truth when that situation comes? If you're tempted to judge someone before you know anything about them, How are you praying for the love and compassion of Jesus to overpower you, even now while you're not being tempted? If you're tempted to talk about someone else's failures behind their back or their weaknesses, how are you praying for self-control? The list goes on and on. What are you susceptible to? And how are we praying for strength now for when we are tempted by those things? The idea is faithfulness begins by acknowledging that we can't do it on our own, and we need Jesus, and we need to be preparing and asking him for help when those times come. And that leads us to the comfort of this passage. Even Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and a disciple, failed miserably. He was so sure of himself, so, the, so sure that he could do it in his own strength. He was so sure that he would follow Jesus to his death, yet when push came to shove, he failed. He represents each one of us. None of us can do it either. We can't stand up on our own. We can't be faithful, but Jesus can. And Jesus did. Where Peter failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Peter was unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. Where Peter lied, Jesus spoke the truth. Where Peter was afraid, Jesus was courageous. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He did for Peter what Peter couldn't do. And then later, Jesus forgave Peter. And he reinstated Peter, and he poured out his Holy Spirit onto Peter. And then Peter was able to be faithful. And Jesus says, anyone who asks him to forgive us and give our lives to him, he will pour out his spirit on us as well. After Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven, Peter was empowered to be faithful. And so can we because of Jesus. The invitation is to turn to Jesus whether for the first time. I I invite you to do that this morning if you've never done that. Ask him to forgive you. Give your life to him. Whether it's for the first time or for the millionth time, we all need him in every moment for every situation, for every temptation, even if we don't feel tempted now. We need him. We need to prepare. We need to turn to Jesus because trials and temptations will come. We need to turn to Jesus because we need him, whether we think we do or not. But the battle for whatever is coming, or if it's here right now, it starts now. We need to turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we talk about Jesus so much, but there's not enough words. There's not enough time to express how amazing and wonderful Jesus is. And so we, we, we need to remind ourselves. The word remember is used so many times in the Bible because we forget so easily and we turn to our own ways and we need to remember and we need to turn to you in every moment. Thank you for reminding us. Thank you for this passage that's, that's challenging but comforting and, and inviting. So Lord, help us to respond to your invitation. Help us to turn to you. And Lord, some of us need to turn to you for comfort this morning. Some of us need to turn to you for strength to respond. Some of us don't know why we need to turn to you, but we need to turn to you. Whatever it is, make us aware of what, what we need from you and that we need you. And help us to turn to you and be willing to respond whatever you say And we thank you that you are able when we're not. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.